The Presto Trino project makes distributed querying easier across a variety of data sources. As the need for machine learning and other high-volume data applications has increased, the need for support, tooling, and cloud infrastructure for Presto Trino has increased with it. Starburst helps your teams run fast queries on any data source. With Starburst, you get a single point of access to your data, no matter where it's stored, and it supports high concurrency. Whether it's fast SQL queries on your data lake or faster queries across multiple datasets, Starburst helps your team run analytics anywhere. Justin Borgman is the CEO of Starburst, and he joins us today. This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean's been an academic founder and Googler. He has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization to quantum computing. Currently, Sean is head of developer relations and product marketing at Skyflow and host of the podcast Partiality Redacted, a podcast about privacy and security engineering. Justin, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so, you know, you've been on the show a couple times before, uh, but just in case someone listening missed those episodes, well, first of all, you know, shame on you. You should go back and, and listen to those. They're great. But let's still have you start by introducing yourself. Who are you? You know, what's your background and how did you end up where you are today? Happy to. Um, so uh, Justin Borgman, co-founder and CEO of Starburst. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about Starburst a little bit in, in this podcast, but uh, I've been basically operating in the big data analytics space for over 12 years now. My my first startup was back in 2010. Uh, that was a company called Hadapt, and it was basically a very early query engine for Hadoop. Back then, Hadoop was the, the data lake of, of the day. And <clears throat> our idea was to really do SQL data warehousing analytics uh, within Hadoop. And that was actually a, a spin out from the Yale Computer Science Department. My co-founder was a, a professor there named Daniel Abadi and his, his PhD student, uh, Camille. Uh, and basically, we built that business over four years, uh, really trying to create kind of an open source data warehouse or what some people today call lake house, actually. I'd I would like to say that was probably one of the early lake house uh, attempts back then. Um, that business was acquired by Teradata in 2014. And I became a VP and GM at Teradata, responsible for really emerging technologies and, and broadly the future of data warehousing analytics. So I like to say that my my domain was sort of uh, the miscellaneous bucket at Teradata. It was like everything other than the core product, which was their 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 uh, data warehousing appliance. But in that job, I had the opportunity to really explore and and think. And along the way, met the creators of uh, an open source project at Facebook that was originally called Presto. Uh, today, it's known as Trino. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating to me. It was fascinating because, A, it had a lot of similarities to the company that I had built. But one really, really important difference, which was that it was not a SQL engine for Hadoop. It was a SQL engine for anything. And... That really got me thinking because when I got to Teradata, one of the first things that struck me was that despite being the leader in data warehousing analytics, not one of their customers actually had all of their enterprise data in the, the enterprise data warehouse. It was just sort of impossible to do. You, you always ended up with data silos. And you know, Trino uh, represented an opportunity to actually access data where it lives and kind of turn that model inside out. And that really intrigued me. 
we started collaborating in the open source community. Uh, my team at Teradata with the creators at Facebook and ultimately the project started to really gain momentum and become usable by a broader audience, not just the Facebooks or the Airbnbs or Netflixes of the world, but, but actually broad, you know, Fortune 1000 customers, customers of all shapes and sizes. And that's when I decided to leave Teradata in 2017 and form a company around this. And that's sort of how Starburst was born. And the creators of the project left Facebook and joined me as my co-founders. And <clears throat> ultimately, uh, Starburst got off the ground. And uh, it's been a wild ride since there. We, ju we just had our five-year birthday like a few days ago uh, as a company. Uh, the first couple of years were bootstrapped, so that was a little bit unusual. We didn't raise venture right away. We just started selling to existing users of the open source initially. And then over time, really built a really compelling enterprise version of the software. Um, and then more recently, we've introduced a cloud version of that software as well. Uh, but we've grown significantly in that period of time. We're now about 550 employees. We've raised over 400 million in, in venture capital and um, you know, are, are trying to uh, build towards an IPO in a couple of years. Yes, yeah, amazing. And I think it's, you know, you, you've been there since, uh, you know, for, for a while in terms of the big data space from but back in 2010, but the sort of growth in the space and the transformations that's happened in the last 12 years and sort of the interest as well and the explosion of companies that are now doing sort of things around big data is uh, really, really, you know, drastically different than it was even 12 years ago. 100% agree. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. We've come a long way. We've come a long way also in, in cloud as, as the dominant form of how you deploy these technologies, because I remember back in 2010, cloud was a buzzword, but there were actually very few companies really using the cloud in a major way back then. And today it's, it's, it's obviously almost like the first choice that you think of um, when, when you're deploying new solutions too. So it's been interesting to see both, you know, the data landscape and, and cloud computing sort of evolve over that, over that decade. Yeah, and I think cloud and the scale of cloud, as well as sort of the data platforms that are available on, on in, in, you know, whether it's the public cloud or, or other platforms, has also sort of forced the industry to adapt and also create a lot of new technologies to actually just handle the scale of the amount of data that companies are storing because they can essentially store more information than they've ever been able to store before by vertically and horizontally scaling via, via you know, the various cloud providers. Absolutely, and, and actually, that's a that's a core element of, of our design that that makes us fast is the use of parallelism, which is, which is I think part of what you're alluding to there is it's very easy to scale out a solution to be able to handle more and more data, um, uh, more and more concurrency, and the cloud makes it very easy to do that. Yeah, so you were you know you mentioned this idea of essentially a SQL engine for anything, which is this you know project now known as Trino. And in any typical database, there's kind of two major components. There's like the storage part, and then there's the query engine part. And you know, in simple terms, the storage is like you know maybe it's your brain memory, and the query engine is your ability to retrieve something from memory and sort of process it. And uh, Trino, the open source project that Starburst is built on, is the query engine part essentially of the database solution. Is that sort of a fair description? Yeah, that's exactly the way I, I explain it. It's the top half of a database. Um, it's a database without storage. So yeah, you nailed it. Mm -hmm. And then also from my understanding and your description, like Trino's you know, obviously not like a general purpose database replacing things like Postgres or MySQL. It's designed to query vast amounts of data across distributed data sources. How does querying across multiple independent data storage locations actually work within Trino? Yeah, that's exactly right. So 
<clears throat> since we ourselves do not have storage, we think of every other system that we connect to as though it's our own storage effectively. And so we're connecting to, you know, the Oracle catalog, the, the Hive catalog, the Blue catalog, maybe in, in AWS. Um, we're getting, connecting to the catalogs of the individual data sources that we're um, uh, reading from and uh, and then executing those queries. And, and we'll push down work to an underlying system where that makes sense. But generally, the heavy lifting is actually happening in Trino or Starburst itself uh, in memory and in a, in a parallel fashion. Um, you know, you mentioned that the design is, is sort of like the top part of a database, the query engine. It's an MPP query engine, massively parallel processing query engine. So that gives it the ability to scale and run uh, very quickly on the data that it's drawing from all of these different data sources. But essentially the model is one of a query engine with connectors. And so again, every piece of storage is, is sort of an equal citizen from our standpoint architecturally. And uh, we just connect to whatever's required to execute that query. Does the, it matter, I guess, like how the data is stored? Uh, you, you mentioned different connectors. Is this, I'm assuming there's some limitations to the, the specific formats that the connectors can actually you know, talk to. So each connector is, is a little bit different in terms of how it ends up being implemented. And they end up being very specific to the data sources that they're connecting to. And so what I mean by that is certainly there are a multitude of relational database systems, which are, are fairly straightforward in terms of understanding you know, SQL syntax and being able to execute those queries. But we also support NoSQL databases like MongoDB or um, <clears throat> you know, streaming systems like Kafka or Elasticsearch, for example, for text search. So there's a very broad array of connectors, roughly 50 connectors today, that um, basically take the SQL query that, that we get as input and translate it to whatever it needs to be to, to go execute on that underlying source system. So how it's laid out does impact things. It does impact performance and, and how that connector is implemented. But um, we have such a wide array of connectors today that um, pretty much any data source is fair game. So how does like the consolidation of those records work? You know, you mentioned the idea of uh, uh, querying across like a NoSQL store, and could you be querying essentially across a NoSQL and a SQL store at the same time and aggregate the results from both of those locations? You absolutely could. That's exactly right. So you know, in in that example, you'd have probably two connectors at play, where one is connecting to a, a relational database, maybe it's Postgres, the other one's connecting to, to Mongo or what have you. And again, we'll push down what makes sense to the underlying system, so sort of like basic filtering, but then we'll pull back what's necessary to execute that joint and complete that joint. And, uh, and we can absolutely do that. It's a very common use case working across different types of systems. Maybe the most, or one of the most common is leveraging data in a data lake in an open data format like Parquet or some of these newer file formats like Iceberg and joining that with a, a different database system that that, uh, that you also have data in. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned you know, the idea that a lot of companies try to solve this problem, I guess, by essentially trying to like, consolidate data into one centralized system. So if you go with this sort of Trino approach, does that essentially stop a company from having to consolidate everything into like a data lake or a, a, you know, a one central data warehouse? It certainly at least gives you the freedom to decide if that's what's best for your particular use case, your particular workload. We don't uh, say, you know, we eliminate ETL. 
but we certainly give you the option to decide if ETL makes sense in that particular case. And I think that optionality, uh, that freedom, uh, is what's so powerful here. You know, there are going to be certain use cases where you just want to go touch that data mark that has a, a particular piece of data that would be relevant to enrich the analytics you're trying to do. There's going to be other cases where you do want to run it through a transformation for data quality purposes or, or what have you, and, and maybe land that in a data lake. Um, and so interestingly, even though we, we eliminate the necessity for ETL, actually a lot of our customers end up using us for ETL as well because of that batch transformation um, capability. You know, we execute SQL queries. We're known for the interactive ones. Those are the sexy ones, you know, being able to deliver fast response times. But we have an increasing number of, of folks using us for batch transformations as well, connecting to those different data sources, running that transformation, and then landing it somewhere else. And so I guess the long-winded way, I would, or, you know, the short version of, of the answer to your question is, uh, you have the flexibility, you have the optionality. And I think that's what makes the, the technology really powerful and also ideally suited for thinking about a long-term evolution of your architecture. Like we like to talk about future-proofing your architecture um, and that you know those data sources are gonna change, um, the workloads are gonna change and being able to have uh, a way of adapting to that change, I think is a, is a powerful thing in your, in your, in your architecture. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying about this like ETL, you know, batch processing use case. Is that something that like that use case, was that something that actually surprised you when people started using that um, Trino for that? Yeah, it absolutely did. In fact, it was really our customers that drove us to, to pay attention to that use case. In fact, you know, the, the headline and, and what a lot of people think about when they hear Starburst is like, oh, OK, I can query data where it lives, so I don't need to ETL anymore. And, and that's certainly true, but then uh, to see that a lot of our customers were doing their ETL jobs anyways and using us uh, was really informative and really interesting. And, and the rationale was, again, they had you know, transformations that they wanted to do. Maybe, maybe they want to create that transformation using something like DBT, but they need something to execute that transformation. And that's what we do. We're, we're the processing engine. So, uh, so we saw more and more customers using us for long-running batch jobs. And as a result, we actually uh, made uh, some adjustments to the core engine itself to tune it for what we call um, query fault tolerance um, or fault tolerant execution is really the way we refer to it, which is to say, even if machines are dying in the middle of that five hour batch job that you're running, the query lives on and, and goes on and on and on. And so that's enabled you know, uh, these batch workloads now to be uh, kind of first-class citizens in, in terms of the types of workloads you can run on, on Starburst or Trino. Yeah, what happens in the case where essentially you're running a query across multiple data sources, but you know one of those data sources for whatever reason becomes unavailable, or maybe it takes you know much longer to actually report results? Is there sort of like a cutoff time, or how does essentially the consolidation of these various like asynchronous um, reporting uh, locations actually? What's the end result, I guess, for the user of that information? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of knobs you can tune in Trino. Uh, and I, I believe that there are a, a few knobs associated with timeouts on, on some of these queries. So certainly, yeah, if a machine went down, uh, or sorry, if a data source went down in particular, and that prevented you from completing a join between two tables living in those two different data sources, that query would fail and um, <clears throat> uh, you know report back to you. Um, but when I refer to query fault tolerance, you know the enhancements at least that we've made 
are more in Starburst itself. Because again, we're an MPP query engine. So if one of our machines dies in the Starburst cluster specifically, that we can we can uh, we can we can manage and continue on with the processing. But yeah, certainly if the underlying data sources go down, you, you, your query will will fail in that case. And there are some timeouts that you can configure to determine is this just a, a slow connection or is this actually you know the connection is is something we should just give up on. Mm -hmm. I see. And then in terms of performance and security, how does Trino essentially improve performance and security with uh, doing this kind of, you know, fairly large scale, uh, you know, uh, querying across multiple disparate data sources? Yeah. So on the performance side, it, it largely comes back to that MPP design, that massively parallel processing design, um, which is what I would say, you know, for the last decade or so, um, you know, new parallel database companies have, have used as a general architecture. So, you know, even Snowflake or, or some earlier versions that were like Snowflake, but not built for the cloud, like Vertica uh, or Greenplum, you know, these were parallel databases systems that could scale out to handle uh, large data sets, quote unquote, big data, as it, as it was becoming known, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and that's essentially the same principles that we use in our own query engine, that you can really scale this out to handle mass amounts of workloads. And what makes us particularly unique relative to a lot of, you know, uh, companies that are born as a commercial startup from day one, we started as an open source startup born at Facebook, which means that our software had to be tested at scale on the first day it ever went into production because Facebook is running on hundreds of petabytes of data, thousands of queries. So the scale and performance was a necessity in the design really from, you know, version 00.1, you know, uh, <clears throat> of the software, which kind of makes it unique. On the security side of things, uh, a big part of what we've added as, as a company uh, from, from the Starburst perspective is access controls. Because we think if we're providing you a single point of access, it's very natural that you would want to have a single point of access control. And, uh, and that is very fine grained for us, uh, row level, column level, data masking, being able to do query auditing, so you know who accessed what. Uh, and we can enforce those policies across all the different data sources that you connect to and, and query. And that becomes a very powerful connection. We also work with some other uh, uh, partners out there. There's uh, an open source project called Ranger that came from the Hadoop ecosystem and a company around that called Privacera. And there's another company called Amuda. And so you, we can integrate with those and use their access control policies and enforce them. But you know, certainly if you're going with this model of accessing decentralized data, um, access control is, is a, a sort of a necessary complement. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, going back to performance, uh, you know, it sounds like, of course, coming out of uh, a place like Facebook where they're dealing with data at a scale that most people, you know, never sort of encounter. Obviously, Trino was designed for it to be very performant. But how does that, the performance compare against doing something like data consolidation through a platform like Snowflake? It's pretty darn close is, is the short answer. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that in that 10 or 12 year period, I guess maybe I'm lucky enough to have seen that that period from the early days uh, to uh, early days of, of you know, data lake analytics to today, is that <clears throat> uh, the file formats for how data is stored in a data lake 
uh, have, has, has dramatically improved performance, like parquet files or columnar formats, which means you, you're storing the data in a columnar way, which will give, give you faster read performance. The query engines in this space, like, like Trino, have also improved. There's, there's cost-based query optimizers. All those components of very sophisticated database systems have now been added. And so even though you have this decoupling of storage and compute, um, we're able to get very, very similar performance, very close to those, uh, those, that more classical approach, the way you described, like a, like a snowflake, which has complete control over their storage. So, uh, you know, I don't like to go in and say, like, we're faster than snowflake. Certainly we are sometimes, depending on the workload, but we're close enough that it might not matter. And I think that's what's interesting here is you have the opportunity to get very similar performance, but still uh, have the optionality, the flexibility, the uh, avoidance of lock-in by using open data formats uh, where, where you'd like to. Right, and also the resources that you have to dedicate to doing that consolidation project in the first place because you probably have your data all over the place to, to begin with. So in a typical database, you might, you know, a, a DBA essentially might do a lot of database tuning for things like adding indices and creating views, maybe adjusting memory usage. How does someone tune the performance of essentially the Trino setup? Yeah, so we've added a lot there as well. You can create views. You can create sort of live views where you're accessing the data sources directly every time you query that view. You can also materialize that view so you can get even better performance. Um, we also, earlier this year, actually made our first acquisition of an Israeli company called Verada, which had built uh, smart caching and smart indexing uh, of your data. Smart meaning that autonomously on the basis of your query patterns, uh, it can decide what data should be indexed and cached to deliver faster performance on subsequent queries. So you don't necessarily have to do all of that tuning and, and um, you know, performance enhancement yourself. Uh, this can actually uh, go a long way uh, autonomously as well, which is, which is pretty cool. So those are some of the, the tricks that we certainly leverage to, to deliver faster performance. Um, and in addition to that, always enhancing the optimizer itself, which is, of course, the brains of the database that's deciding the exact order of joins and, and how the query plan is going to be executed. So if this is something that I want to use, what is sort of the process of getting started? Like, how do I essentially go from uh, you know, nothing to, uh, you know, connecting some of my data sources and then starting to be able to run some of these uh, queries across these different places? Well, there are a few ways you can get started. Certainly you can download the open source project if you want and deploy it and, and manage it yourself. Um, we also offer an enterprise version that is uh, self-managed as well. You can, you can buy it on AWS Marketplace. You can reach out to us uh, and, and help you get started. And then probably the easiest way though, I've saved the best for last here. The easiest way is our, our cloud offering, which is called Galaxy and Galaxy is you know, a, a managed SaaS solution. It's still your storage, uh, but we're managing the compute and the control plane and that, that infrastructure. So you don't have to you know, worry about all the different nodes being you know, working together and, and all those different knobs that I referenced um, are available for tuning. We're sort of doing that on your behalf behind the scenes. Um, on the basis of, of what's going to be best for you and, and your workload. So that's the easiest way to consume. We have a free tier, so you can actually try it out for free and, and not, not pay a penny. Uh, but those are, those are a few of the options that you would have. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, is the main sort of difference between, uh, you know, running Trino myself and versus using Starburst, Enterprise, or Galaxy, the fact that those services are, are managed or in particular in Galaxy, you're essentially running those as a like a SaaS-based solution, or are there other things that go above and beyond that that are uh, not supported if I was to run essentially the Trino project uh, directly myself? Yeah, so with, with Starburst Enterprise, we've added a bunch of functionality that doesn't exist in the open source today. A lot of that is around some of the security and access controls that we spoke of, some of the performance enhancements around smart caching, smart indexing. Um, you know, those are a few examples. We have something called data products as well, which allows you to really easily create views of your data, uh, materialize those views, and make it searchable by others in your organization to consume with BI tools or however they'd like to consume. Um, we have a built-in query editor. So there are a lot of features and functionality. And of course, 24 by 7 support comes with that product as well. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> for, for those familiar with open source business models, you'd probably call that an open core model in, in that case. Galaxy adds a dimension to that, which is it is managed as well. And so that's just a new element to the value proposition is, is trying to make it easy for you uh, in addition to having all those features. Yeah, so Starburst is built on, you know, Trino, which we've been talking about, which is, you know, this open source project that originally originated at Facebook. But how does, you know, from your multi-time founder, you know, how does this essentially building a company based on an open source project differ from building something perhaps off a, you know, proprietary closed source? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, uh, it has pros and cons, I guess, like most things in life. Um, you know, the, the pros are certainly you get a, a viral adoption or distribution channel, essentially, by virtue of the software being free and available to anybody all around the world. And what was really cool about that was when we were in that bootstrapping phase, you know, we hadn't raised venture, nobody knew who we were. We were seeing people downloaded in Singapore, in uh, Brazil, in Argentina, in, you know, uh, in, in Germany, in Poland, all, all over the world. And uh, some of those early customers that we ended up converting were, were truly global. Uh, I remember closing a, a bank in Singapore uh, during my honeymoon. My wife will probably never forget that one also. Um, but, you know, that was like just uh, maybe six months into the founding of the, of the company. And so that's that's a super cool aspect of, of open source. Another benefit is the community itself is providing great feedback and contributions themselves to the technology. So, for example, um, <clears throat> geospatial functions were created by the ride-sharing companies. We didn't actually write that code ourselves. That was the ride-sharing companies that contributed that. And now pretty much every ride-sharing company around the world leverages that, that software as a result. And you know it's something we didn't have to do. So that's pretty cool when, when your community is really uh, helping you make the product better and, and better. And I think that allows you to develop software uh, faster and for a wide variety of use cases. Uh, in that model. So those are some of the benefits. I think the biggest challenge is you do always have that inherent question of how do you compete with yourself? Um, how do you compete with free? And, and you know, we wrestle with that all the time. Uh, that challenge is exacerbated when, uh, you know, cloud providers like AWS, of course, take that software and make it part of their own offerings um, as well. Uh, so, you know, you always have to be thinking about what am I putting into the open source versus what am I keeping for, 
you know, sort of proprietary value add to justify the expense of, of paying for the product that I offer. And I think that's a very important balance. There, there isn't like a clear science to it. There's, it's probably more art than science. There's, there's some philosophy involved as well in terms of the types of license models that you want to use. Um, but uh, again, when you find the right balance, I think it can be a really powerful vehicle for distribution for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's some amazing things, like you said, that you get from open source, like just that, especially, you know, as a bootstrap company, you're starting out, you you can essentially massively scale sort of your feedback loops by tapping into these communities that already care about this project. Have you, you know, from a business perspective, has there been a challenge to sort of distinguish yourself as, you know, Starburst as something other than essentially like the Trino company? Um, yeah, I, I think there's probably some truth to that. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, I think part of what we're trying to do, and, and I, I, I referenced this very briefly, um, the creation of a, a new aspect of our product, which we call data products, which sort of sits on top of the engine. I think, you know, for, for super technical people, data engineers, like the engine is cool. And, and we love the engine that is the core of what we do. But with data products, what we're trying to do is basically kind of take the value of the platform up a level to a level where the business consumers, the data consumers, if you will, see the value of this platform. And so with data products, you're basically creating views of, of data that you've curated uh, to be discovered and consumed by others in your organization. And the beauty of our approach is because the, the engine is our engine underneath, these data products can span multiple data sources. So the, the data product is not just a table and a database, it could actually be the result of the join between two tables and two different databases that form this, this sort of data product. And so that's like one example of where, you know, we're trying to really define who we are as an enabler of, you know, uh, um, self-service con consumption of data. I mean, I think ultimately we're trying to drive um, data democratization such that the intern and the CEO can both go to the same place, find the data they need and, and start to interact with it. And from an engineering and infrastructure perspective, what was sort of evolved with creating a you know a managed solution of, of Trino in the Starburst Galaxy version? Uh, a lot <laughs> takes longer than than we thought for sure, and <clears throat> that was the advice I got early on from from some others that have, have you know been down this path before us. Was like get started on that cloud platform as soon as possible. It's going to take longer than you think, and. And that's certainly true. And we actually ended up implementing it twice, uh, which is a little bit of the inside baseball of, of Galaxy's development. Our original design uh, was going to leverage the compute in the customer's uh, account uh, and just, just be a control plane. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of challenges from a usability and, and sort of guaranteeing a particular quality uh, of experience with that approach. And so we simultaneously started to disrupt ourselves internally and had a, a kind of a secret project, not a secret project, but a special project, I guess, going on in our engineering organization to uh, to try a different approach, which which was for us to manage the compute, still connect to the customer's sources, but for us to manage the compute. And that design ended up being just much, much more user friendly, much easier to deploy. And, uh, you know, and I think being uh, agile and being willing to, to challenge your own assumptions um, you know, is ultimately going to drive a, a, a better product at the end of the day. So, you know, it took us over two years to get really the, the software out 
uh, and now it's been generally available for, for almost one year. Um, but it was it was certainly a journey to get there. And were did you find a lot of um, you know existing customers were they moving over from the you know Starburst Enterprise to Starburst Galaxy, or is it, has most of the new customers essentially just been like uh, you know new to this problem and they and they came to it and they wanted to essentially go with the uh, SaaS based approach? Yeah, great question. So some are moving, but actually I would say the majority are net new and. Um, I think that, that that's that's probably a good thing from our standpoint because part of what we wanted to do with Galaxy was really broaden our, our market reach by being able to uh, put the power of the platform in the hands of more customers. And you know, deploying the open source or deploying our self-managed solution um, takes some work. There's there's some complexity there involved in the deployment itself, and so the customers of those technologies end up being pretty sophisticated, larger organizations. And we wanted to be able to go down market a bit, uh, really be able to play um, with you know customers of all shapes and sizes uh, with Galaxy. And so we've certainly seen that that many of our early adopters on the Galaxy platform over the last 12 months are not necessarily household brands today. They're they're smaller companies, they're, they're fast growing companies, a lot of startups in there um, that are now able to take advantage of the software that might have been uh, a little bit out of their reach otherwise. And then as a user, if I'm using Starburst Galaxy, is sort of the hardest part of getting started just setting up the connections to my data sources or is there other you know, challenges that I might have to work through at the beginning? Yeah, that's that's really it. You know, you. you connect to your data sources. Hopefully that's a one-time experience or an infrequent experience of, of connect, making those connections, uh, making sure that you have you know, the right um, security permissions to access those data sources. And then you can start to run your queries and uh, it becomes much more interactive, much more fun you know, at that point once you've, you've connected. And we have this built-in um, <clears throat> query editor really just so that you can start to move quickly and, uh, and experience the engine um, you know, quickly out of the box at that point once you've made those connections. So the query editor, is that essentially something similar to like what you would find with a, a typical like SQL builder for a traditional database? Exactly, exactly. And, and we do provide connectivity to any tool you would like to use. So if there's a, a favorite tool you have, whether it's a BI tool or a query editor tool or, or a Python notebook or whatever, whatever the case may be, um, we can connect to those through JDBC, ODBC, or, or a REST API that we have. Uh, but we just found that having a built-in editor allowed at least the power user, maybe the early data engineer who's setting this up to start to kind of run queries and, and, and play with the system, and then you know maybe connect their favorite tool later. And who, who's the typical user of uh, you know, Starburst? Is it yeah, a mix of people, or is it primarily like a, like a data analyst? Well, um, so it, very often it is a data engineer or data architect that is uh, first putting it through its paces and getting it set up and configured. But their customers internally, their, their end users, tend to be those data analysts or data scientists that need access to data. They either want to um, do interactive you know, ad hoc SQL queries, they want to use BI, they want to run reports, uh, they want to maybe find the data that they need to train a machine learning model. Um, so those are the, the types of people or types of uh, personas that would be uh, benefiting from the software. Again, generally more of a, a data engineer, or data architect who, who deploys it initially. Right. That makes sense. And then in terms of 
governance and sort of controlling access to these different sources. You know, you mentioned, I think you partner with Immuta, but if, if someone's not using Immuta, how does navigating sort of the various governance layers for these different sources work within Starburst? Yeah, so we have this notion of kind of global access control where you can define those fine-grained access control policies within Starburst itself, and then we'll, we'll enforce those. And, you know, our goal versus kind of what we build relative to the partners that we work with is, you know, we want to have uh, um, access control that solves maybe 70 or 80% of the needs uh, of, of customers, and then partner with best-of-breed companies that deliver more than, than what we you know, uh, provide. So Immuta is a great example where they offer attribute-based access control and have some really, really sophisticated elements to the access controls that they provide, which are particularly valuable within government, financial services, you know, highly regulated industries. Um, you know, if you're <clears throat> running a small e-commerce shop, maybe you don't need that level of sophistication. And, and so we, we try to kind of offer the best of both worlds. Right. And, you know, this you mentioned earlier this idea of like sort of democratizing access to data, which I think you know, reminds or, or puts into mind uh, you know this concept that I think now is is gaining a lot of traction, which is the data mesh. So how does your product sort of fit into the world of the data mesh? Yeah, the data mesh is something we're very excited about. I mean, the, at the core of the data mesh strategy or data mesh paradigm, I guess you could say is this notion that data is decentralized and rather than us you know, spending 40 more years fighting that reality, uh, kind of embracing that as, as a fact of life and turning it into more of a strength. And you know, some of the core pillars of uh, a data mesh are this notion of domain ownership, meaning that the, the people who create the data know the data the best, uh, this idea of thinking about data as a product, uh, which we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, this idea of, of a self-service infrastructure, and then of course providing uh, governance across all of these uh, different connections to data sources that you might have. And so we, um, we we try to be very careful to say that like we don't sell a data mesh in a box. No, nobody does, but we certainly enable one. And we have probably more customers implementing a data mesh than than I would I would guess anyone else uh, out there in the ecosystem because our design really helps support that model. Um, I would also mention that data mesh is really about people, process, and technology. And while we think we've got a, a really good uh, a product for the technology side of things, there's people in process involved as well. You know, how much do you want to uh, democratize uh, control over the creation of data products? Do you want every uh, data producer to be able to create a data product, in which case you probably end up with a lot of data products. Um, and that's one approach that's sort of embracing data mesh perhaps to its fullest. Uh, but we also see customers who want to, to manage the data products that get created a bit so that they're ensuring that these are like gold star, gold standard, you know, two thumbs up data products that we want people to consume and they want to manage the quality that way. And so, you know, we try to work within whatever level of maturity or whatever level of uh, adoption of data mesh you look to deploy and provide a, a platform that, that can be flexible enough to enable whatever your version of a data mesh is. And I'll tell you a quick funny story related to that. I was at an event in London a couple weeks ago, uh, Big Data London, and uh, chatting with one of our large customers who is deploying a data mesh. 
And he was saying, you know, kind of like Fight Club, the first rule of data mesh is don't talk about data mesh. And what he meant was, you know, the term sometimes uh, scares people, intimidates people, seems, you know, um, almost theoretical, overwhelming. Um, and so, uh, you know, he was saying they're building a data mesh, just not calling it one. And, you know, maybe a few years from now, they'll look back and be like, actually, that was a data mesh we just built. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny as well, just, um, you know, as these terms get thrown around and, and, uh, and hyped up, people have different perceptions of, of them. And, and uh, anyhow. Yeah, is that, you always need a sort of healthy fear of the hype where uh, you might get attached to some concept that in a few years becomes like that, that hated concept that no one wants to really talk about anymore. I really like what you said, um, and I've heard this a few times recently sort of in the in the big data space, the, the idea of treating data as a product, which I think, you know, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, just with the scale of the cloud, people are storing so much more data today and have and, and using tools like Trino and other tools that are in the market essentially gives them access to actually uh, um, sort of inform their business at a rate that they never ever really been able to do in the past so they can really empower the data that they're actually st storing and sort of productize it and use that to inform decisions that are making about the business and essentially make a better more profitable business that's better for their customers 100 percent agree 100 percent agree so one of the use cases you mentioned earlier that we talked a little bit about was the, you know, using Trino for ETL, which was something that was surprising for you. Are there other surprising use cases that you've seen of, of your products? Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, I'll call them interesting, not necessarily surprising, but um, we have customers who leverage us through a cloud transformation where they're migrating from on-prem to the cloud and they're using us for part of that transformation process a to provide you know, sort of a single access layer to data both on-prem and in the cloud and we become this sort of abstraction uh, layer for them uh, but also to actually move the data itself and again more of like an etl batch style use case take take tables out of let's say a legacy data warehouse and move them uh, to you know somewhere in the cloud uh, as well, and so that's that's an interesting pattern. Um, I think the other one that's interesting and, and actually kind of exciting to me is seeing customers who use us as uh, an embedded engine powering an application of their own, which may actually be their own product. Even we have we have some customers that use us in more of that like OEM style fashion, where we are the engine behind. Uh, you know, analytics that they offer within their, their product offering. Um, and I think that's pretty exciting because I think data is becoming more and more important to, you know, application developers in terms of what gets surfaced to customers and, and so forth. So that's a, that's an interesting trend as well. Um, you know, those, those are a couple that come to mind. Yeah, those are great. And, you know, I guess like, where do you see the data space going in the next five to 10 years? You know, you've been in it for, for, you know, a little over a dozen years has been a huge sort of transformation, I think, in your time that you've been working on it. Where do you see it, you know, 10 years from now? Yeah, my, my hope is that <clears throat> uh, if we've been successful, that, that storage uh, has become sufficiently commoditized with respect to data analytics, that we no longer care which system it is in. I think for, for 40 years, it's been like, well, is it in that database? Is it in that database? Is it Oracle? Is it Teradata? Is it Snowflake? 
And we want to make that irrelevant. You know, I think if we're successful in creating that, that optionality, that freedom to decide where the data lives, then customers have the freedom to start to optimize for cost and performance in terms of where they lay it out. Um, so that's, that's the bet we're making. Like right now, there is this interesting trend, I would say, over, over the last few years uh, up to this point of basically just re-implementing the traditional data warehousing stack. You know, uh, that, I, I love a lot of the, the, the vendors in, incorporated within the modern data stack, but the modern data stack isn't really that modern per se. Like, <laughs> I, I, I hope I'm not being too controversial, but it is, it is a new stack, but new isn't always modern. And I think like that has been a very natural first step as people have moved to the cloud. They want cloud versions of what they already know. I think there's a greater opportunity, a more disruptive opportunity to really uh, flip that model inside out. And, uh, and, and that's what makes data mesh so exciting. That's what makes you know, decentralization and, and thinking about data in a decentralized fashion so exciting. Because again, you know, in 40 years of database history, we were never able to consolidate everything in one place. Today, we have more different types of database systems than ever before. We have more clouds, we have you know, on-prem in the cloud, we have multiple regions, we have GDPR, data privacy, data sovereignty, so many different forces that are basically driving decentralization uh, that we have to have a new strategy for managing it. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point about the modern data stack, the it hasn't necessarily been a real, uh, you know, paradigm shift in, in the way that we sort of manage data. It's been more like how do we sort of migrate some things that we, we already understand and bring it to the cloud and we can do it at a higher scale, whereas this sort of decentralized model is a way to actually really change the way that we actually work with data at a fundamental level. Exactly. So is there anything else you'd like our, the audience to know? Uh, no, it's been great to be a guest here again. Uh, obviously, this is such an incredible uh, podcast. I'm just really happy to be here. So thank you, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show again, Justin. It's uh, It was really, I think, um, informative for me and hopefully the audience as well, kind of dipping into your, your 10 plus years of working in the data space and sharing your perspective about that. And I think there's a lot of amazing engineering that obviously went into the Trino project. So I think it's really fascinating to learn about you know, how that went essentially from something at Facebook to open source to now what you're doing at Starburst. So thanks. Thanks again for sharing that journey. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me.